Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And uh, joining us in the Great Midwest Bank Hotline, it is John Oriolvitz, longtime uh, member of the IndyCar scene, uh, going back to the kart days of late 1990s, and... Uh, of course, uh, coming out with a new book, neat book, uh, Aquest Racing's Rise and Fall. Pretty neat book, uh, which uh, celebrates kind of a, a neat, or I should say, time flies, I should say, the history of Aquest Racing. Uh, welcome to the show, John. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you joining us. And uh, Aquest Racing, of course, is uh, uh, was that's where. Uh, Scott Dixon got his start. A lot of people might not remember that, but uh, Scott Dixon was a was an up and coming driver, uh, and uh, was the for a long time long time was the youngest winner, if I recall, in the old kart circuit uh, when he won at Nazareth way back when, wasn't it? He did set that record, and you know, long time fans of the sport might remember when Dixon came over here in 1999. He was 18 years old and. He actually looked a lot like Paul Tracy at that age. He was kind of pudgy yes. with, you know, ginger complexion. And um, he drove a year of Indy Lights over here for Stefan Johansson's team. And Stefan ended up taking over as his, his manager and remains his manager to this day, in fact. And Johansson kind of negotiated a deal for him to join Pac West in for the 2000 season. And he was teamed with Tony Renna. Uh, at Pac West to run Indy Lights. And he had a really successful season. There was kind of a unspoken... Um, really, with PacWest's IndyCar team in the kart series, Mauricio Guzman and Mark Blundell were in their late 30s, kind of in the twilight of their career, and the team wasn't really achieving a lot of results on the IndyCar side. And they knew that there was a possibility for one or both of them possibly to move up, and um, Dixon pretty comprehensively uh, showed that he was the guy in 2000. He won six races in the Indy Lights Championship. I believe his comp- main competition that year was Townsend Bell. And then he got promoted to the Kart Series in 2001, and Pac West kind of recovered from the difficulties they had in, in the late 90s when the Mercedes Ilmore engine program wasn't competitive or reliable. And they had Toyota engines in 2001, and as you point out, it was a, it was a pretty circumstantial win uh, at Nazareth. Dixon was only making his third start in IndyCars. Um, he qualified near the back, and it was a it was a fuel mileage race. But it's interesting that even at that point in his career, when he wasn't even 21 years old yet, he was mature enough to manage a race that way. And it's kind of mm-hmm. become a hallmark of him. He's he's won you know he won one race for Pac West, and he's won fit, uh, 49 races now for Chip Ganassi. 
and he's closing in on Mario Andretti on the all-time win list. And it's it's kind of mystifying to see the slump that he's been in here for the last couple of races. And it'll be interesting to see whether he can snap out of it today. And this is kind of an interesting book. I'm looking forward to reading it because uh, uh, it, it has an in, a definite insider's look because uh, you worked for PacWest Racing as a PR rep. And, uh, you know, seeing that side of it, you certainly see a difference, uh, especially with the amount of time you're with the drivers and back then, too, the media, in certain ways, was a lot bigger in certain ways, I think. Uh, and to kind of walk us through that, how, how that really changed and, and what, what you initially thought when you when you finally got to the other side of the pit wall, so to speak, uh, on that side of racing. Well, there's no question that the kart series, up to the, the split with the Indy Racing League, when Tony George branched off and created some conflict that I think a lot of people thought was unnecessary. Um, the kart series was flying high in the 90s. You had Nigel Mansell racing here in 93 and 94. You had the emergence of Jacques Villeneuve, who went on to become a Formula One world champion. Uh, the kart series was, was really doing well in the mid-90s uh, with a, a ton of international attention and a ton of national and international media. Um, I got my start working in the media. Uh, I, I owe a lot of my career to Nigel Mansell in the sense that that I got involved in 1993 and and the English uh, media was desperate for content from Nigel Mansell so I I got to cover Nigel Mansell's first couple years over here but by the time 97 came around I was in a position where I had to quote unquote get a job start pulling my weight and so I I got a job with PacWest as the PR guy and I honestly, if, if, if I'm truthful, I didn't really know what I was doing for the first half of the season. I always set out to be a journalist, and I kind of achieved my dream, but in a very small-time way. And Going to work for PacWest, I, I did it for two years. It ended up being great for my career because when I went back into the media in 1999, it was at a much higher level, and I was able to come in as the CART series correspondent for National Speed Sport News and do some work for, for uh, CART's uh, independent website, um, the Pac West years were, were fascinating for me. Um, it was just so educational to learn about how a racing team works and just, you know, I always think thought of it as a sport. And of course I've grown up and realized that it's really a business and that's kind of unfortunate in some ways and good in others. But, uh, the two years at Pac West, it, it really gave me a insight into how teams work, how drivers work. Uh, what, you know, what, having known what the media looked for, it was, it was interesting to try to service that side. I mean, I didn't get a whole lot of satisfaction out of writing press releases or pitching stories. I wanted to actually write the stories, which is ultimately why I went back into the press, but unbelievably invaluable experience some really, really good times, uh, just especially doing functions with the drivers. I mean, if you get to spend a week with Mauricio Guzman in Brazil and, and he wins pole position for his home race, it's there's a lot of excitement that goes around it. and A lot of it was unexpected. I mean, I I honestly, when I went there, I didn't think Pac West had run that great. I saw a couple of guys who in Formula One, and I understand that Formula One is very dictated by the cars that people drive, but I saw a couple of guys that were midfielders in Formula One. But when they got over here and when they got the right package in 1997 with the right engine and the right tires and the right chassis and the right engineers, suddenly these guys were, were capable of winning races. And um, You know, Pac West doesn't have the pedigree or the heritage of Penske or Ganassi or Newman Haas, but at the same time, it's it's kind of unique in the sense that 
Bruce McCaw was one of the first outsiders from outside of racing who came in and, and tried to make a go of it as a business. And ultimately that failed, but I don't think it was really down to the team itself. It was down to the circumstances and some of the decisions they made. They, they were too loyal to the Mercedes engine program. And ultimately that's one of the two or three key factors that, that put them out of business at the end of 2001. I, I do have to ask you this, uh, since you brought up Brazil and that, and it came up in conversation just a week or two ago with a, a bunch of buddies. We were chatting, and, and the subject of uh, Mark Blundell came up in that scary crash he had at Brazil. And this is a time in a time before Hans devices and software, software barriers where he had, a, if I recall, it was a throttle stuck as he was coming into uh, turns three and four at a very, very scary and one of the hardest hits I've ever seen in an Indy car, and uh, can and you know when that happened, we were thinking the worst. I was I remember I was watching it with a bunch of guys, and we're it was it was a scary, scary crash. Kind of, can you give us a little background on that, or do you do you have any background on that crash and Blundell and and on that? Well, I do. That was uh, that was in 1996. It was the first year that they raced it at Rio at the so-called. Rick Mears actually called it a roval. He was the first guy to bring that word into the lexicon because the track was, it was actually a trapezoid-shaped track that had two short straights, two long straights, but it was uh, opposite symmetrical at each end. In other words, the radius of, of turn one and two was the same as three and four, but, but just in opposite. And the result of it is, is that the guys had to, they had to brake pretty hard going into one, and they had to brake even harder going into four. And Blundell actually uh, suffered a total brake failure going into turn, turn four. Uh, the problem, and, and we actually document this with a with a pretty significant sidebar in the book, uh, a PacWest, or I should say a Galmer-engineered uh, part failed, and it hadn't been proper. We kind of go through that whole thing. And, you know, not just that, but the, the emotional toll that something like that, when, when a project that you initiate ends up not working and, and puts a guy in the hospital, uh, it was a scary crash. Um, Mark was sidelined for a couple races, and um, it did lead to some changes in the sense that PacWest ended their relationship with Galmer and, and took engineering operations under their own roof in Indianapolis under the head of a guy called Alan McDonald, who IndyCar fans might recognize as an engineer that's been with Team Green, and uh, Ray, I think he's with Ray Halls now. Um so it, it, it led to changes within the team. But the other thing it did is it, it really spurred development of a soft wall. The next year in Brazil, they had, it was essentially like a tire barrier at a road course or a street course. And it was kind of banded together by this conveyor belt-like material. And it's it's kind of ironic that Gujelman was the first guy to test it in the race in 97 because he had a gearbox failure and he crashed. And he said it was like sitting down in a chair the first time that he crashed into a soft wall. Now, that particular application didn't work because they found the following year you know with the rubber band effect getting pitched back onto the track but it was an important step in the development of what uh, and it's ironic because i'm sitting out here at the roundabout outside turn one of indianapolis motor speedway and the speedway was just so developmental uh instrumental excuse me in creating this uh went into went into operation in 2002 and I think every oval racer around the world 
owes a debt of gratitude to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and NASCAR for their part in funding it. And, and of course, Dr. Dean Sicking and the University of Nebraska uh, team that actually did the research and came up with this life-saving device, which is between the, between the safer barrier and the Hans device that protects drivers from basal skull fracture. Those are by far the two most important safety advances of the 21st century. Totally agree. Totally, yeah, totally agree on that. We're talking with John, John Oriovets on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline. His new book, Time Flies, A History of Pac West Racing, uh, available online. We'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, like, like you said, you're at the Harvest Grand Prix this weekend, and uh, you had a rare f- uh, Friday race, which, well, but let's face it, because of the COVID-19 epidemic, uh, IndyCar has to fill out the schedule, and they, they kind of did the doubleheader with a Friday-Saturday race. Uh, I was, you know, kind of tongue in cheek saying it's probably going to be the lowest rating, lowest rated IndyCar race ever uh, because it was held on a Friday afternoon on the USA Network. But a very entertaining race, and and you know, since they redid that oval at Indianapolis, and I think they did the right thing by getting the drivers' input on how to properly maybe do a, a to reconfigure the racetrack or tweak it as they did uh, from when it was a Formula One track. It certainly has become a race here, and then yesterday I thought was was a pretty entertaining race. And what, what, what can we uh, expect uh, today at the Harvest Grand Prix, John? I think we, we're looking at another struggling day for Scott Dixon. He didn't qualify very well again. He's, he's fortunate in the respect that Joseph Newgarden only qualified as well. But um, these guys are going to try to make chicken salad out of something else today when they're starting that far back in the midfield. Mm-hmm. Dixon's, his, his goal very simply has to be to finish ahead of, of Newgarden. If he can simply achieve that goal, I think he makes Joseph's uh, possibilities of taking the championship in, at St. Pete pretty much impossible. But at the same time, you know, Scott's starting 15th or 16th, I forget which. It's a 75 laps instead of 85 laps, and so most people should pretty comfortably be able to do it on this. Uh, yesterday, there was definitely a lot of strategy options. So it's, it's, I think we're looking at a track position day, and Dixon and... I think Newgarden will probably play it pretty conservative. I think Dixon, from where he's at, I think he can afford to gamble more and be one of the guys that maybe goes off strategy and stops early. Uh, it's It's been strange to see the number nine team have off game the last three or four races, uh, really since the since the first race at St. Louis. Um, you know, Scott spun at Mid-Ohio, which is an unforced error. He, he had another unforced error in yesterday's race that cost him a couple positions, and that's pretty uncharacteristic for him, and it just shows the, you know, the amount of pressure and the and the tension that goes into these championship battles, and especially when a guy like Joseph Newgarden and a quality team like Penske gets a little momentum on their side, they can they can really run with it. So Dixon's mission today is to kind of stop the bleeding. Um, if he can't finish ahead of Newgarden, he f- needs to finish within three or four, two, three, four positions of him, and at least have a. 25 or 30 point cushion going into the the race at St. Pete where uh, where anything other than a you know back of the field finish should should guarantee him the championship. Well, John, we lost you there for a second. 
uh, talking with John Oriovitz uh, with his book, The History of PacWest Racing. And, uh, John, if you can hear me, uh, what's the easiest way to get that book? Well, I wish I could say there was a super easy way. Uh, if, if you go to my website, johnoriovitz.com, um, I should, I'm trying to re-engineer my website and get a direct link up right now. Um, you can leave a comment on there and, uh, with your email address or whatever, and I'll get, I'd be glad to get back to you. It is available through, uh, retail outlets. You can get it through Motorsport Collector in Northern Illinois. You can get it through Coastal 181. Uh, Racer Magazine, uh, is, is having a promotion on it right now. It's, it's nice if you order direct from me because it lines my pocket with a little bit more cash, which is always appreciated. And, uh, as a benefit, if you order direct from me, and again, just uh, my first name and last name at Comcast.net if you want to reach out to me um, directly. But uh, I do have book plates, uh, custom-made book plates for the books uh, signed by Bruce McCall that I'd be glad to sign as well. It's always a nice oh, excellent. Yeah, very good. Well, we will post that on our on our on our Facebook site and uh, put that up uh, later today on how to get the book. And John, we certainly appreciate you uh, taking time out. How's the weather down there today at uh, Indianapolis? It's funny. My girlfriend was just complaining that it's a little bit too warm. Um, it's, oh, it's okay. actually to me, it's actually perfect for what's being billed as the Harvest Grand Prix. It's mm-hmm. sixty degrees. Um, you know, partly sunny, partly cloudy. It's a it's a crisp fall day. It's the kind of day where I'm going to go watch a car race, drink a couple beers, and then go home and make a fire in the fire pit. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 